You're listening to the Disney One by One podcast, a chronological look at every Disney animated classic and beyond. Here's your host, Mike Rolfing. Hello and welcome to Disney One by One. This week we're talking about The Fox and the Hound from 1981. And as always, make sure to check us out all over the internet at Disney One X One. And of course, if you leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, it'd be much appreciated. As always with me today, uh, my brother David, the the copper to my Todd. <laughs> David, welcome to the show. I hope not, because you wouldn't be a very good friend if that were the case. <laughs> Thank you for having me back, Mike. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, it, it all kind of comes together in the end. Spoiler alert. Kind of. And joining us, a returning guest from all the way back from our Dumbo episode, Patrick Schaefer. Welcome back to Disney One by One. What's up, guys? Thanks for having me back. Happy to have you here. Patrick, um, I was reminded of something that I wanted to bring up. Uh, some people have, a- have been asking where I've been, where we've been acquiring these movies because there's been some pretty obscure ones. And if you are looking to find these movies to, to follow along with the show, I highly recommend checking out your local library. There's often <laughs> copies of these old ones there. But also, I was able to find a few of them at Family Video. Yeah, <laughs> which, man. Which reminded me of a few stories I heard from you um, <laughs> of your time working at Family Video. Wait, what's Family Video? For those of us who are younger. Go ahead, Patrick. Okay, well, hang on. First of all, I need to establish that you do know what Family Video is, right, David? No. What? <laughs> I mean, maybe. Unless, oh, my God. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Do I? I wasn't sure if you were asking, like, quote, unquote, for a friend or or if this is really just for the audience. <laughs> no, that so. was for me. Right. Un- I'll, I'll educate you as well. Yeah, okay. Thanks. So, Family Video is the, the David to Blockbuster's Goliath, and it is... A rental chain, <laughs> a rental chain that is still somehow in existence and thriving, and it's also where I worked, uh, like as my my college job, all <laughs> over the St. Louis area. You always get some very interesting clientele, but yeah, I mean, they all have a free kids movie section. Yeah, which so is where I found a few of these. Yeah. Most of these movies would definitely pass through my hands on a regular basis to some little kid, and then. You could tell who's watching them too, because whenever they would come back in the Dropbox, they were covered in like like boogers and were scratched to <laughs> <laughs> scratched into oblivion. And I'd have to polish these things back for the next kid. But family video has always been fascinating to me because, well, a because they're still in business. Mm-hmm. B because they have adult sections in the back. Yeah, very uh, <laughs> Just conflicted. Despite the name family video, yeah, yeah, dude, working there was a trip. Like I have so many stories about like. It's just people losing their minds because the DVD was scratched up or people trying to steal porn or grabbing 50 free kids movies. And I'm just, you're just kind of like, all right, what, whatever. That's, it's fine. <laughs> They're free. The last thing I'll tell you about family video, it was like my first week working there and I'm going through orientation and I answer the phone and I'm like, thanks for calling family video. You know, and people are normally, even if they're short with you, They'll at least be like, do you have this or is this in? <laughs> so I answer the phone and this woman just goes, hey, I had a spy. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, this is family video. Were, were you looking for a, a movie or what, how, what, what can I do to help you? And she just goes, hey, I had a spy. And after I heard, hey, I had a spy, about five times I go, are you saying Harriet the spy? <laughs> like I inferred that she was in fact asking for this like Nickelodeon movie called Harriet the Spy, which we yeah. had on VHS. And it was really cool because I had it was uh, it was orange plastic, mm. you know, because Nickelodeon instead of yeah. the, 
basic black, but yeah, had to spy was my first <laughs> taste of uh, the types of customers we would regularly get there. <laughs> Did you get to pick which movie was playing on the TVs throughout the store? Yes, and I always played stuff that I probably shouldn't have played. It was like, you know, there's some soft rules, you know, like Fridays and Saturdays, don't play movies. You need to play like the, the trailer uh, compilation mm-hmm. to get people to be getting those new releases and stuff. Um, I just kind of played whatever I want all the time. People would always come in and want to take my movie. There'd be movies we had like one copy of and people would stop looking at movies and just stare at the TV and be like, what is this? Do you have, can I get this? <laughs> and, you know, so I'd play like every Star Wars movie or Indiana Jones or let's watch the Spider-Man movies or some old random classics that were rated PG-13 or never anything R. I never, never pushed it too much, but. Oh, fascinating. Not to belabor the point, but yeah. yeah, David, there is still a family video like five minutes from my house. Gotcha. And you can go in there and rent movies and there's a pizza place attached to it. The thing that I find fascinating about family video, they are still in business because, and correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, that they own all their own property. Yeah, they have an excellent business model. They buy all the buildings right. and own several several other businesses so that when the rental game goes belly up, They'll just be like, cool, so put a gym in there or a tanning salon or right. whatever. And so instead of leasing space, they own they own their land so that if all of a sudden they are not selling movies anymore, they'll open. Yeah, they'll open. Like I think they own like Snap Fitness 24-7 or something like that. They own, I believe they do. I mean, like, again, I, I can't say any of this with like 100% certainty, yeah. but like I worked there for years. But yeah, they've got gyms and tanning salons and I believe they partnered with Marcos. Maybe yeah, have, I think they're I think owned they have by part the same. ownership. And, and honestly, like, their overhead is not that insane. Like, to go buy these movies, they sell them back discounted. They make they pay for themselves 10 times over in rentals. And it's a good business model for sure. It's amazing, though, that they're not only still in business, they're literally still growing. Yeah, and, and a lot of them are in small towns, too. Yeah, people that don't know about them, internets and yep. the Netflix is what, what is this Netflix thing? Yeah. Yeah. I just exactly. want to give you a dollar and you give me a movie and that be that. <laughs> I do recognize the logo, so mm-hmm. I was aware. Okay. Just Dave. not fully aware. Well, may- maybe there's one in Denver, Dave. You can go check it out. Ooh. None in Denver, I can tell you that. Oh, okay. All right. And with that, we'll move on to The Fox and the Hound. And now, our feature presentation. Look out. Here it comes. Hot out of Walt Disney Productions. Holy smoke. The Fox and the Hound. My, my. Look at that. First, as always, some history of this movie for you. This is a this is a juicy one. This is a fun one. This is the stuff I love. <laughs> First off, we need to establish a new character in the in the world of, of Disney here. Ron Miller, who is Walt Disney's son-in-law, kind of worked his way up through through the company, but because he was the son-in-law, he kind of he was a, it was a privilege working his way up through but by 1978 he became the uh, the president of Disney and was sort of the guy in charge and he actually just died this past February so he's, he was he was he's around for a while yeah became the president of Walt Disney Disney Productions in 78 and the CEO in 83 he was uh, did a lot of things for Disney including creating touch the touchstone label if you recognize touchstone oh yeah it was sort of a s- segment of Disney that released movies like uh, they did like Armageddon and a couple Shyamalan movies and 
Dead Poets Society and Sister Act, and a lot of those movies were touchstone pictures. He helped create that. He also helped create the Disney Channel and a number of other things. He was quite the innovator, uh, like like his father-in-law. So he uh, is involved in Fox and the Hound. This is one of the first movies that he worked on. Fox and the Hound is based on a novel by Daniel P. Mannix. You know, the story of Todd the Fox, who befriended a hunting dog named Copper. And the uh, book, or the original story, is a little more realistic. I believe in the end, they all just die. Oh, man. <laughs> Jeez. Like, Todd gets uh, shot and, and hung on the wall, and Copper gets euthanized. Cause <laughs> the Whoa. End. Cold as ice. Because <laughs> he lost his edge. He went soft. So, yeah, so... Uh, Wolfgang Reitherman, who David, I'm sure you recognize that name. He's uh, he directed a number of the more recent movies. He he read this book and was interested in it. Apparently, because his son had a pet fox at some point. Kind of odd, I guess that was a thing. And uh, he began production on this movie, pre-production in 1977. Wolf uh, had a co-director on this, Art Stevens, who also co-directed The Rescuers with him, I believe. But they were having some creative differences, uh, them and Ron Miller, who I mentioned before, who is now in charge of Disney. They were having creative differences over large parts of the movie. Miller sided with Art Stevens, but Wolf was still in charge. There was a huge debate over whether Chief, the kind of older dog who trains Copper, should die or not. Because Oh my god, yes. And honestly, yes, when we get a little further into the plot, <laughs> that would make this movie make a lot more sense mm-hmm. if he did. But there was the executives didn't want that to happen, but Wolfgang did, and there were all these fights back and forth. Another feud later on, Wolfgang wanted to add a musical number into the movie because I guess he felt that made it more classic Disney. They re- they wrote and recorded a song called Scooby Dooby Dooby Doo, Let Your Body Turn Goo. <laughs> what? <laughs> Which was to be <laughs> sung by the two birds, I think, at some point in the movie. Okay. They recorded it. They had the singer and actress Charo record it. But the studio hated it, and they didn't think it fit into the movie, which I honestly don't blame them, <laughs> just based on that information. I'm guessing that would have been like regarding the uh, caterpillar like turning into a butterfly. Cause, Possibly, yeah. Cause kind of like... I know they kind of like liquefy in the cocoon. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Still, let your body, let your body turn goo. Yeah, Ill-advised. <laughs> like, that is weird. Science. So, poor Wolfgang. This guy has has directed 101 Dalmatians, Sword in the Stone, Jungle Book, Aristocats, Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh, The Rescuers, and now, like, everyone's poo-pooing his ideas. He's sort of like the old man now. There's a, there's a quote from him. He he kind of slid his way into the that co-director Art Stevens' office and just kind of slumped in the chair and said, "I don't know, I don't know. Maybe this is a young man's medium now." So he's feeling his age a little bit. So he, he did continue to work on the movie. I think he's credited as producer, but he was ultimately not a director on it. After this movie, worked on like a short film or two, and then he died in a car accident in 1985. Yeesh. Wolfgang, like real quick, kind of slid off the out of the Disney scene. He is a Disney legend. Disney has a list of kind of their Hall of Fame. He is one of the Disney legends and one of the original, one of those nine old men. Speaking of the nine old men, the original kind of team of Disney animators, by 1978, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, who were two of the remaining nine old men, had finished their work uh, animating the characters. They animated the, the fox and the hound, but didn't do backgrounds and that sort of thing. So they, they wrapped that up. And this was the final movie that the uh, any of the nine old men, the classic Disney animators, worked on. Which brings me to a fascinating thing. They, 
you know, finished their their work and handed it off to sort of the the new guard, the young the young group of animators who had all kind of come from local art schools that Disney the Disney company was grooming. And this group of people included Glenn Keane, who David we talked about last week, ended up animating Little Mermaid, Lion King, a whole bunch of movies, won an Oscar for that Kobe Bryant short last year. Yeah. Don Bluth, who we talked about, who ended up starting his own company, making uh, Five Goes West and and Anastasia and a bunch of animated uh, Land Before Time in those in those movies. Tim Burton worked on this movie. What we all know him. Uh, John Musker and Ron Clements, who went on to direct Moana and a whole bunch of others. John Lasseter worked on this movie. Cool. Who we all know uh, went on to be the head of Pixar and now the sort of uh, shunned former head of Pixar. Brad Bird worked on this movie. Now a quite prominent uh, film director and animation director. He did Incredibles, both and of them. Ratatouille. Ratatouille. He directed a Mission Impossible movie. So them and a number of others uh, were sort of this new group of animators that were coming in that that basically finished this movie. This is like this movie is like like the rookie season for like the 1933 Yankees or something yeah, like right. ridiculous. <laughs> Do you know what Burton did? Like, I'm curious, like out of all those names, you know, like a lot of them, even for me ring a bell and I'm like, what did Tim Burton do? Was he like an animator? Did he direct some of the animation? I think in this one, he just did like some concept art that may not have been used. Okay. Um, but I, he, he definitely worked on a number of Disney movies before he moved on to his own thing. And, and actually, I mean, nightmare before Christmas was, was released by Disney. Um, he has a history with them, certainly. So, 1979, we're still not to the release of this movie. Don Bluth, who I mentioned, who went on to start his own company, came to Ron Miller and frustrated with some things going on. It's so like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go do my own thing. And 13 other guys followed him to go start his own company. Whoops. And they had quite the success with, with uh, some collaborations with Steven Spielberg and some other movies. But So now, like, 15% of the animators were gone. And they had to push the release date from the original plan of Christmas 1980 to summer of 81. And finally, four years after it started, uh, the movie was finally finished and over 180 different people worked on it in some form or another, which is pretty wild. It was released July 10th, 1981, the most expensive animated movie ever made at $12 million. Whoa. Which is 12 times the budget of Snow White. <laughs> I would not have guessed that. And it made uh, $63 million at the box office, ultimately, so it was a success. The cast, which we can talk about a little bit later, but Mickey Rooney plays the older Todd. Mm -hmm. Kurt Russell plays the older Copper. Yeah. We have uh, Pat Buttram back as Chief. He played Sheriff of Nottingham and a couple of other characters. Very recognizable voice. And then uh, Young Copper was played by Corey Feldman. I saw that. I paused and was like, <laughs> wait a second. Who, was he in the Goonies? No, uh, Stand By Me. No, what's he in? Hang on, I always mix up Feldman and Han Okay, so. He's in Goonies. And he is, Stan he and is, Sta he is in Stand By Me. You're right. And Stand By Me. I, I got both of them, and he's in Gremlins. He also like had a relationship with Michael Jackson that was weird or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure he had affiliation with Michael hmm. Jackson. I think uh, any relationship with Michael Jackson was probably a weird one. Yeah, oh, here we go. He later accused Jackson of having damaged his childhood by befriending and then abandoning him. All right. Ooh. So uh, this movie had a direct-to-video follow-up, as many of these did. The Fox and the Hound 2 was released uh, in December of 2006 to uh, poor reviews. Do you know the gist of that? I saw it. That's one of the many movies I remember seeing at Family Video. Yeah. And just being like, nope, I will not. It takes place when they're still kids. So it's like an in-between movie. So it's like one and a half. Does it take 
place in between like when they're both babies and then he goes on yes. a hunting trip for yeah. like a season and then comes back as a full-grown adult. Yeah, which was weird. Yeah. <laughs> the film takes place during the youth of Todd and Copper before the events of the latter half of the first film. Okay. The storyline involves Copper being tempted to join a band of singing stray dogs, thus <laughs> threatening his friendship with Todd. Chief would have never let that fly. So no. no way. The film was critically panned, with critics uh, calling it a pale imitation of its predecessor. So, that is the the extensive history of, of Fox and the Hound. <laughs> Patrick, I remember you mentioning on 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 our Dumbo episode. I believe you listed this in your top five. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about just your Fox and the Hound history before we dive into the plot of the movie. Uh, I mean, it was one of the VHS movies that we had out of a limited selection. So by default, it's one that we watched a lot. And so I definitely have that very typical nostalgic connection to it. Yeah. Trying, I was trying to think about like before I watched this, I was like, now what do I remember about this movie? You know, like I remembered that they're basically like victim, victims of circumstance. I remember, I remember his mom dying. I remember Big Mama. It's it's a movie that I probably remembered more scenes from than than a lot of other movies that I watched at this age. It definitely stuck with me, like the dynamic of their friendship and the sadness when Todd gets dumped in the forest. You know, like <laughs> he gets his uh, Harry and the Hendersons moment, and it, a lot of a lot of uh, emotions and memories came flooding back as I watched this. Yeah, that that scene also reminded me of a uh, Toy Story two, well two and three, and two. There's the scene where where Jesse gets left in the box by the tree. Mm-hmm. And they they sing that song uh, when she loved me. So sad. Anyway, David, had you seen this movie before? Yeah, it's funny you bring up family video because I rented this movie. I remember, or mom rented it for me when I was sick one time in elementary school. I don't remember how old, but definitely younger. Um, so I remember watching this one in the basement by myself. I remember liking it. I did not remember kind of like how brutal it is to what's his name Todd the fox he just keeps getting beat down and beat down it's like a very sad story overall um i remembered it more actually now that i think about it i just watched this like right before we started recording i think i might have seen the one and a half movie <laughs> oh no not, not this movie oh gosh cuz if that if that one's more about like their friendship as kids that would make more sense why I remember the movie as being more about their friendship because mm. they were only like hanging out for 15 minutes of the hour 20 of this movie. So I think I saw the other one as a kid, actually. <laughs> so I guess I hadn't seen this one before. Swing and a miss. Swing and a miss by Mama Rolfing. Yeah. <laughs> Grabbing the sequel on accident. I don't know. That's Fox and I had a dog on there. It'd be cute. I thought David it, would like it. Yeah. That's like grabbing a, a Return of Jafar instead of Aladdin or yeah, something. And yeah. Then you come home and David's like, Mom, no. Or that's like, so speaking of family video, and that was probably rented from Blockbuster because we lived basically across the street from a Blockbuster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember you know, my dad or a friend telling me that I should watch Back to the Future. And so I went to Blockbuster and the only one, this was probably like middle school or high school. And the only one there was the third one. <laughs> so I watched Back to the Future 3 first. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Did me you? too. Yeah. We had like, there are so many franchises that I watched completely out of order because I grew up and it would be like my mom, you know, she would put in a tape and it'd be like Oprah 
for the first two minutes and then it would kick over to like whatever channel that Star Wars was on. Yeah. And so like, you know, Back to the Future, Star Wars, um, a lot of these movies, I saw the third one first, but only like 90% of it with commercials in there. Right. You know, I saw The Empire Strikes Back first <laughs> and then was like, wait a minute, there's a, there's a whole lot more going on here. That's a lot more detrimental to your life than watching Fox and the Hound one and a half first. <laughs> it's okay, fine, David. You want me to say it? I, I had there, there was some damage done. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's like my my life's movie mission to make sure my daughter doesn't know that Darth Vader is Luke's father until we get to watch that movie. Same. You know, in the in the correct order. So we'll see if that happens. It's gonna be hard to avoid. Give her that gift. Yep. And then film it and see the natural reaction. <laughs> yeah, and then I think I watched Back to the Future 2, second. I had seen enough moments of one, like, just in pop culture that it still kind of made sense. Like, I got the gist, but yeah, I definitely watch those in reverse. I think I went 3-1-2. Okay, well, that's a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Because 3 is kind of its own deal. It is. But 2 directly references 1 in, mm-hmm. in many ways. So. Oh, yeah. Anyway, Fox and the Hound won. I don't think I'd seen this before. It was not familiar. I, as we've mentioned in half these episodes, the, there we had sing-along VHS tapes, and the Best of Friends song was on one of those. So a few moments of this I'd definitely seen, but the movie as a whole, not familiar with it. Okay, Patrick, you've rewatched this movie probably for the first time in a long while. What do you think of it? I still, I still love it. If I'm being honest, I'm sure a lot of that is still just from the nostalgic connection that I have to it. I tried to be a little more critical of this than I was probably the last time I saw it, which might mm-hmm. have been like when I was 12 or 13. Yeah, I definitely still enjoyed it. Like the movie has heart for sure. It's rough around the edges. You can tell that they compromised in a lot of ways. Like. I think a lot of the more um, contemporary Disney movies have a little bit more bite to them. You know, people will die. Characters will die. Like, Chief should have died. Yeah. (laughs) One of the two of them, like the fox or the hound, should have died. Seemed like there were a lot of missed opportunities. Um, Yeah. And it was sloppy in parts, you know, like weird pacing, like weird issues with time. Like, it takes like a month for a caterpillar to turn into a butterfly. Yet, the, like, like the Jer- the Jersey bird and like his lackey are hunting for this caterpillar the entire movie. Yet they grow from being like pups, babies to like to like <laughs> like getting ready to kill each other, adults with like love interests and stuff. And this thing hasn't even turned into a butterfly yet. I'm just like, what the hell is going on here? Like, what what kind of time is passing here? Well, I'm not a dog person at all. Do dogs grow that fast? <laughs> dogs are full grown mo- like within two years. Oh, okay. Year and yeah, a half, not, not a two. season. Yeah, it's not. Four months <laughs> is a little quick. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. So I'm glad we've clarified this. The same thing kind of happens in Bambi. I feel like Bambi grows up real quick, just like through the one year that the movie takes place in. So, okay, you guys have seen Bambi more recently than I have for sure. Did Bambi also screw itself by incorporating a crappy B story that nailed down uh, a contrarian timeline, like with a caterpillar? (laughs) Or was Bambi just like, yeah, like we moved a little bit fast here. The pacing's off, but like, you don't know. It could have been three years and now he's an adult. The, the, The latter. Yeah. Okay. 
This movie, I just could not help. I mean, like, it's a kid's movie, right? It's a kid's movie. Who cares? But I guess a lot of the things that bugged me about it this time while I was being more critical, I'm like, these are these are all solvable problems. So that's why I, I thought it it seemed a little lazy and sloppy in, in portions of it. Sure. The uh, the whole caterpillar subplot reminded me a lot of of the squirrel in Ice Age. Mm-hmm. It's like this part of the movie that doesn't really matter, but they just have it in there for comic relief. Yeah, it was it was silly and fun. Is this it, Boomer? Oh, sure, Dickie. This is the place. I never forget a tree. I never forget a tree. <laughs> All right, David, this is your first time seeing this, maybe, if you did indeed watch the sequel. So uh, what would you think? Yeah, um, kind of first impressions. I really enjoyed the movie. I I liked the characters. I liked like the different kind of whole vibe for the movie, how downtrodden and just how oppressed, how oppressed Todd was in this movie. I just felt so bad for him. It just kept getting beat down and beat down. It was just different. He's so naive too. Yeah. It was just a darker, a darker vibe for his character. And he was, he was the primary protagonist. And at the beginning you thought it might've been copper too, but obviously bad friend copper you don't like really like him by the end of the movie the film as a whole it didn't really totally have that disney magic that some of these other movies we've watched has i mean the last one we watched was the rescuers i would probably say the same thing about that and then the ones before that jungle book aristocats robin hood winnie the pooh like those are like solid just like they have that disney magic i feel like you mentioned this is the the last movie those two old nine men animators worked on and it's kind of transitioning to this new era of younger animators i feel like these next few movies black cauldron great mouse detective oliver and company these are kind of people don't really think of these when they think of classic disney movies because they're kind of just getting ramped up in this new generation of animators Um, obviously they hit their stride late 80s early 90s with an incredible kind of streak of classic Disney movies, but this one just, it just didn't have that Disney, complete Disney flair for me. I enjoyed it as a movie, as like a, a good cartoon, but it wasn't like my favorite Disney movie. What do you think it was about this one? Like if you had to nail down where like the lack of magic, as you put it, was like, was it was it that they like kind of dabbled with some more serious plot points, but didn't go all the way? Or was it like the production value or like... It might have been like, just maybe just that that's t- really small scale. It just feels a little bit different. Right? Yeah, compared yeah. to like Aladdin where they're going all across the country and flying around. And so this, this movie just takes place at this one farm mm-hmm. and in the adjacent woods next to this farm, um, which Disney doesn't like to stay small like that. They like big, grand, epic stories. So that, that could be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if some of that was because of this changing of the guard. I mentioned that those two guys, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, animated the main characters. And then I'm just assuming this, but I think a lot of the backgrounds and things were pushed off to those younger guys. And maybe because they were newer at it, that's why they kind of stayed in close-ups and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, That might have had something to do with it. I did find the animation generally to be better quality than the last few. If not by default, right? I mean... It's good. You're going to get better over time. But. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this in the last number of episodes, Patrick, in the, which movie did that start in Dave? The Xeroxing, <laughs> I think 101 uh, Dalmatians. Yep. Dalmatians. 
they started using this process. It was like a rudimentary Xerox machine that would that would transfer their drawings from paper onto the cells, so they didn't have to do it by hand. But in turn, it like ruined the quality of the borders and stuff. Mm-hmm. Whatever. And at least from my untrained eye, this looks like they did not use that process and actually like went back to this more old fashioned animation. So mm-hmm. in that sense, I actually thought the look of it and the quality of it was great compared to the last few rescuers and and even robin hood and dalmatians and sword in the stone just because those were grittier looking just because of the this the process they were using Mm -hmm. and the lower budget probably yeah possibly and honestly the budget probably skyrocketed on this because of all the changing of folks and the arguments and the fights and stuff it may have been less about (laughs) seriously man right because i don't know i really tried to get into like just analyzing the production value of this and it was like very spotty they picked their moments to, to show off and most of the time they didn't and there are a lot of a lot of times where the resolution takes a real big dip and you can tell that they pushed in on a master to like yes re- reframe something you know yeah. which, which whatever you know you, you gotta do what you gotta do but like you don't gotta do what you gotta do when you're apparently the most expensive disney movie to date <laughs> As I said, this was the first time I'd seen this, and overall, I, I I enjoyed it. I think it was it was rather charming. And David, you you keep mentioning how you don't really like the dog in the end, but he does he does kind of save the day. Like there's, oh, there's come a little on. bit of re- he, redeeming they, redeeming value is, to that. He just wants the love of his master. That's all he cares about. He what he okay. No, he, he cares steps. About he steps in front of the fox and saves Todd, his life. Ty would have yeah, been dead in that river, bro. He still doesn't want to be his friend after that. He just walks away and they look at each other like, yeah, we're never going to be friends. You don't know that. What if they make a third one? He grew up with him as his buddy and then he just, he's trained to be a hunting dog and then never wants anything to do with Todd again. He cares more about Chief, Chief, the other dog, right? Yeah. 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 He cares more about Chief when he's falling falling off the bridge then his master taking shots at Todd like I don't know he's just the worst friend in history <laughs> by the end of the movie I hated him he is he is all over the place I think everyone ends up I, I don't know anybody that like wouldn't root for Todd over Copper by any means but like maybe by the end of the movie you're like all right Copper's like not too bad but yeah for the yeah. most part you're just like what a what a betrayal it's so quick too. I mean, these movies are all pretty short. So also, Todd didn't do anything. Chief's dumbass got hit by a train. He got hit <laughs> hit by a train and it got sent careening into a friggin' sixty feet valley. And well, by the way, he's like clinging and clanging against the side. Like his legs would he would have been dead and yeah. should have been dead. They show close-ups of his face smashing against rocks. Well, and him like dying basically with his eyes slowly <laughs> closing, and then two two shots later, he's like, "Oh, I've got a cast on my leg." Yeah, yeah. I think at one point, and I, I don't, rem- I, f- I recall reading this that I mean, I mentioned before that there was a huge argument about if he should die or not. Yeah, and they ended up going, yeah, you know, for him surviving, which I think we all agree is a bad choice. But I think they actually animated that at some point where he did die. And then they had to go back in and like change his eyes, <laughs> you know. So they were opening. <laughs> Wouldn't that it have made have been so much more so sense? much better? Oh Here my we go. Gosh. Yeah, Ollie, Ollie Johnson's test animation of Chief stomping around the house. Yeah, da, 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 da. 
Randy Cartwright, who was one of the younger guys, reanimated the scene where Copper finds Chief's body and had him animate Chief's eyes opening and closing so that the audience knew that he was not dead. So at mm. one point, it was animated for him for him to die. That's just a missed opportunity, in my opinion. Same. In that chase scene, Copper lets Todd go. So you're like, okay, he's still nice to him. And then Chief gets killed. If they actually killed Chief, that would have been good motivation for Copper to actually, like dislike todd now and so then he is like really conflicted at the end of the movie when he has to choose to save him it would have just made that payoff even better if he would have died there especially when you consider what chief uh brings to the movie after he doesn't die which is he literally sets up one more joke like (laughs) chief being alive you get to see him complaining and trying to get attention with his broken leg so that at the end of the movie he gets to call Amos, what a baby, complaining about that leg. Yeah. Right? Like, that's it. Yeah, yeah that is it. He does nothing <laughs> else. Well, we could have written a better movie, I guess. A few uh, random observations, and feel free to chime in on your random observations as well. Uh, first thing I noticed right off the bat is this movie did not start with music. It did eventually ramp in in the opening credits, but I think every single one of these movies so far has started with some like dramatic orchestral song, like opening as the as the first you know Disney title comes on screen. And this one began with nature sounds. And it was very kind of ominous and but also peaceful and a first, I believe, for these movies. And then eventually the music kind of ramped in by the end of the opening credits, but I thought that the, was the an intro, interesting choice. The whole thing is five minutes long, that whole intro. Yeah, was it really? Cool. Yeah, five. The chasing exactly. like, up until like the mother's death was five minutes? Yeah. Wow. Did not feel long. like it. It was, it was obviously very Bambi-esque, right? Like, yeah. that, that's how Bambi starts. I wonder if... Uh, well, uh, his mom doesn't die until like halfway through, but... Oh, really? In Bambi? Yeah. I think in my mind, I've just have mixed the opening of this movie with like that whole aspect of Bambi because I haven't seen mm-hmm. that in forever. Do you think this movie got as much backlash as Bambi did from like, you know, hunters and stuff being like, what? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, Bambi was much earlier too. It was in the the, the 40s. Mm-hmm. Bambi was 1942, right around World War II. And there's just a lot of a lot of things that, yeah, hunting, but also it was sort of, it could have been taken as an allegory for... Uh, war-related things, and it's certainly more of a classic than than Fox and the Hound is. And seeing the seeing the two of them in pretty close proximity to each other, I definitely liked Bambi more. Mm, okay, I like this one more than Bambi. <laughs> Bambi is a work of art. It's so good. Anyway, what other random things we got? I noticed immediately the voice of one of the birds, the bird called Boomer. Oh, Tigger. That's, that's your is, guy, man. Is, is Tigger? No, yeah. it's uh, what's that? <laughs> yeah, what's that guy's name? I wrote that down. Uh, Paul Winchell is the original voice of of, uh, of Tigger. Come on, let's go, Boomer. Come on. Oh yeah. But, 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 uh, oh shucks. And then, of course, as I mentioned, Chief is played by Pat Buttram, most famous in my head for Sheriff of, Sheriff of Nottingham and, and Robin Hood, but played some other characters as well. Ah shucks, that's easy. The master just cooking grits and fat back. You ought to know that. The the person that always stuck out to me is that the. The hunter, Amos, is the grandpa from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, I didn't notice that. What? Come on, guys. Okay, yeah, now now I see it. Totally. I got a surprise for you, Chief Old Boy. (laughs) No, 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 take it easy. Jack Albertson. 
Come on, copper. <laughs> Good dang flabbit, you widow. <laughs> Burp, Charlie. Burp. It's weird. It's weird to be like, man, Charlie's grandpa was so cool, and this one he's just like such a jerk. Yeah. Bloodthirsty. I don't know if this movie is necessarily in response to anything, but we talked about it in Dumbo. Like, I, I had all kinds of theories about, like, oh, this had to be, they had to have been in, so informed by World War II, you know? And this yeah. one, I was like, you know, it came out in 81. Like, I, I don't know, maybe, like, the Civil Rights Movement? Even that would be pretty late to the game. Like, what, you know, what might this be informed by? Like, what, it's, a, it's two friends, and one of them gets incredibly indoctrinated, you know? They're, they're victims of circumstance. Yeah. What's that being informed by? I was looking at some some reviews of it, and Roger Ebert, he summarized it, I thought, pretty well. And David, this still, just, this, this still goes against your interpretation of this movie, that you think uh, the dog is bad <laughs> till the end. But uh, Roger Ebert says, The Fox and the Hound is one of those relatively rare Disney animated features that contains a useful lesson useful lesson for its younger audiences it's not just cute animals and frightening adventures and a happy ending it's also a rather thoughtful meditation on how society determines our behavior so i guess that could still go along with what you're saying dave but yeah doesn't mean i don't like him yeah i mean it shows that despite differences and different races or religions or whatever that we can still all come together in the end right but they don't come together. I mean, it just, I mean, I think the lesson is that you can be kind to people that are in like different cultures or roles or whatever, whatever sure. it's going to be. You can still be kind to them, but you can also have those differences. Like okay. you don't have to be, have the exact same life as somebody to be kind to them, I guess. All right. That works. Yeah. I think that's well said. What I remember taking away from this movie was like, I learned, I would say I learned about like friendship in this movie. Mm-hmm. Not so much about like how society can define us in our roles and stuff. That's definitely there. But for me, I remember thinking like it's okay to friends fight sometimes. It's okay to get in fights. You can you can still make up and get past it basically. And also like a lesson of you know, sometimes you sometimes best friends don't stay best friends forever and you have to move on sometimes mm-hmm. too. Like I mean, I have plenty of friends from high school and college that I don't really keep in touch with, and it's just it just it just kind of happens that way as you as you progress through life. Even even in this movie, when life only progresses by like a year <laughs> or, or four or five months, or this is a heavy is. this is a heavy couple of weeks. Yeah, know, just for these just guys. just add a zero to that or something, and and you can you can interpret it as you will. So sad, so many sad moments in this movie. Yeah, at least he finds his lover or whatever in the last Vixie, Vixie few minutes. Yeah, but also at the end, the the old lady and the old man are kind of friends. That's so weird, though. <laughs> That's so weird. Why are After you taking care of this guy? And... Like you have yes, like this guy has harassed you, tried to break into your house, kill your pet, shot at you several times. Only referred to you as woman, female, and widow. Yeah, get out here, <laughs> widow! It's like, oh my god. I don't care what decade this is in. I'm pretty sure if you lived in this part of the country, out in the woods, you started banging on some lady's door screaming, get out here, widow, she'd probably come out with a shotgun too. Yeah, one of her own, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a weird ending. Still very crude sound design and parts. Same stuff mm. I noted in uh, Dumbo. Yeah, you know, yeah. Some, uh, the fox will go scurrying, and 
I don't, we don't hear his paws, you know, scratching into the dirt and stuff. And yeah. Random wa- loud water splashes that sound off. But I feel like where these movies lack sound design, they have amazing music. And I think this, like, like many of the rest of them had a great score. It was definitely a little seventies. You get a little bit of that seventies. Dude, you get that jazz bass and the yeah. chase scenes like. It, it reminded me a lot of, of, of the Roger Moore Bond movies. Like yeah. the old ones have like amazing classical scores, and the new ones have amazing classical scores. And those middle ones, you just get like a little funky guitar every so often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like I love the Bond song supposed to be played on surf guitar, but like it's it's still it's still cool. I like it. The score in this one was was by Buddy Baker, a uh, Disney music veteran. Okay, so let's. Uh, we need to establish a rating system on this one. Patrick, David, you can assist. Uh, as always. Out, out of what? Fox oh, and, and Hound related as we wrap this up. I'd vote for spazzy caterpillars. All right. How many? Out of what? Five, ten? Ten. Okay. We'll do ten. All right. So Patrick, out of ten spazzy caterpillars, how would you rate this movie? And give me your final thoughts. I think when you combine my nostalgic connection to this versus like my critical rewatching of this, it would get averaged out at about seven and a half spazzy caterpillars. Okay. Still very heartwarming, very endearing. I like that it's a different kind of Disney movie, has a good message. And despite the missteps and some of the awkwardness that I think is probably inherent to all the drama that you outlined, still a solid one, in my opinion. Seven and a half spazzy caterpillars. Cool. David, Spazzy Caterpillars. I think if I actually would have seen this one instead of its sequel, I would have said the exact same score as you, Patrick, but I think I would give it a 7 out of 10 Spazzy Caterpillars. It was good. I mean, I agree with all of your reasons. It was a good length. It was actually maybe the longest Disney movie we've seen yet. Hour 20. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it didn't feel like no. it was being dragged on at all, so that's a good thing. But I did enjoy the characters. I liked. We didn't mention the bear battle scene, which was pretty cool, and that mm. ba- the animation of that bear is solid. I know they spent a lot of time on it from reading the Wikipedia page. Well, and that was done by Glenn Keane, who was one of those new guys who yeah. goes on to have quite the the career, as I mentioned before. That was intense and awesome. Yeah, very, very ferocious bear. Um, so you've been doing cocaine climax. all day, like. Just he has like bloodshot red eyes and is just growling yeah. nonstop. Like his breathing is just growling. Like it's really unsettling. It rivals it rivals the revenant. Yes. There's a black <laughs> there's a dark black grizzly yeah. bear. One of a kind. But that's my review. Seven out of ten spazzy caterpillars. Cool. I feel like I like this movie more than you better than you, Dave, but I settled on the same the same score it was seven out of ten i think it was solid i enjoyed it I, I agree with you that it didn't feel long despite being pretty long compared to some of the rest of these i really liked the characters i thought the fox and the hound were were great as adults and kids were both very interesting characters very charming the fox just reminded me of robin hood <laughs> both the foxes it's like a mini mini mm-hmm. version of robin hood that walks on four legs instead of two but yeah i think the some of the songs were were really nice it's it was just a nice movie. It was a nice, it's calming, kind of charming, kind of just nice. Yeah. <laughs> so I give it a nice seven out of ten. With that, we'll wrap up this episode. Patrick, thank you so much again for joining us on Disney One by One. 
Thanks, guys. It was a blast. And David, as always, good to have you. Once again, I forgot to look up a good quote to go out on. Uh, about, forever is a long time, and time has a way of changing things. I think. All right, I got one. No, just do. Can you just do Mr. Digger and just go? Go on, get, get. We'll always be friends forever, won't we? Yeah, forever. Not. I'm a liar and a traitor. Aww. That was going to be such a nice way to end this. Remember to check us out on social media, Disney1x1, and check us out on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. If you write a review, we will read it on the show as we have been doing. So once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week with The Black Cauldron. Oh, man. I haven't seen it. I heard it's terrible. (laughs) We'll see. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Disney One by One podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, send us an email to Disney1x1 at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Disney1x1 and at Disney1x1.com. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the Disney One by One podcast.